First Samuel, oh, let me say this too. Uh, we've been talking the past couple of weeks about change and kind of how that works and kind of a new year thing. We have a couple of anchors in our church. We have three really that help keep us on track. One of them is to stay in Marietta. I'm not going to talk about that today, but the other two kind of main anchors that help direct us as a body. One is found in Romans 8.29. Um, Paul says that God has predestined us to be conformed into the image of Jesus. That's kind of churchy language, but really the bottom line is God's desire is for each of us to become as much like Jesus as possible before we die. That's the goal. When he cracks open our chest, he wants to look inside and he wants our heart, which is the center of your mind, will, and emotions. It's the core of your personality. It really is who you are. He wants that to be shaped into the image of Jesus. He's not creating clones of Jesus at all, but he's looking for each of us to be formed and shaped into his image. So that's one of those rocks. And the other we talk about a lot is found in Ephesians 2.10 where Paul says that God created good works in advance for us to do. So kind of the picture there is that there are these, it, it, it's your destiny, it's God's will for your life or God's call on your life or your purpose. All those type of words here, the shorthand is we say it's your deal, that you have a deal. If you're a person, when God was knitting you together in your mother's womb, he was also creating this life for you to live in. I'm not talking about your job. I'm not talking about your career. I'm talking more broadly than all of that. It's your deal. It's what he put you on earth to do. Romans 8.29 is about your character. It's about who you are. And God wants to form and shape your inside so you look like Jesus. And Ephesians 2.10 is about what you do. It's about your lifestyle. And, you want, and, and God has said, I've, I've got something for you here. You're not just wandering around aimlessly. It matters. You matter, and what you do matters. And those are kind of two. Those are two of the anchors that, as a church, we use to keep us moving forward. And if you're, if you feel like this is the place for you, and we're your people, those are the two things that you're going to hear from me on a regular basis. And my commitment to you is, as a church, we're going to do whatever we can to help you get there. We'll do whatever we can to to help you become more like Jesus, and whatever we can to help you discover and then do your deal. And so for the next four or five weeks, we're going to look at David, King David in the Old Testament through those lenses, through the lenses of Romans 8.29 and Ephesians 2.10. The Bible, he's the only person that I can think of, I could be wrong, he's the only person I recall who was ever described as a man after God's own heart. He took after God. He had the Romans 8.29. He had the image of Jesus thing down. It was, he was not perfect by any means, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks, but there was something about his heart that reflected the heart of God. And also, he knew from the time he was about 12 or 13 what his deal was. It took him to 30 to get there, and then it was 40 years that he was the king. And so he's a guy who also did his deal, and it wasn't cakewalk for him. He had to, there was some trying times, and I think there's a lot we can learn by looking at David's life. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next four or five weeks, looking at him through those lenses. Today, honestly, is a little bit boring. Sorry. It's foundation. This is not practical at all. So if you're looking for practical, you have to come back next week. Today, this is just, this is foundational stuff that we need to know before we can do anything. We need to get, uh, we're going to get God, I, w- I want to talk a little bit this morning about kind of God's perspective on this, what God does, and then we'll talk about what we do in response to that in the coming weeks. So this is 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. The verses will be on the screen if you want to follow along. 
The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Saul was the first king of Israel. And in chapter 15, if you want to look back at that, if you're looking for something practical and you think you're going to get bored, go back, read chapter 15. You can see why Saul was rejected. I've rejected him as king. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. So Samuel's a prophet. During this time in Israel's history, the way a king was chosen was the prophet. And Samuel was recognized as that would go and dump oil on his head. And that was that anointing him and kind of that was the thing. And that was the signal that God had chosen this particular person. So the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to... Well, excuse me, I skipped the verse. Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled when they met him. They said, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. That was not unusual for a prophet to do that. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So that's Jesse's oldest son. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass by before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel, Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was ready with the fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in, his presence of his bro- in the presence of his brother. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. So this is the picture of David kind of figuring, finding out what his deal is. He's probably 12 or 13 years old at this time. Again, it's not until he's 30 that he actually sits on the throne. There's a gap there that we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks where he had a lot of things going on. Just real quick, David was the second king of Israel, and he was the standard for every other king. He was kind of seen as the ideal king, and every other king was measured compared to David. Kind of the highlights of his life, you probably remember the Goliath story. That's kind of a classic underdog David versus Goliath. Um, he's also famous, really, for the sin that he committed with Bathsheba. He committed adultery and then had her husband killed. And it's a wretched, there's a, it, it ends well. He repents and he's redeemed, so you kind of have that picture. He's the one that established Jerusalem as the, as the capital of Israel. He wrote many of the Psalms, um, probably most famously Psalm 23. If you've ever been to a funeral, you've probably heard that Psalm. So that's just kind of who David was. He's really esteemed as, again, this man after God's own heart and someone who knew what he was supposed to do and went after it full force. So that's David. A few things here real quick. Verse 3. No, excuse me, verse 1. God says, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. First thing you need to know if you're going to do your deal is that God decides. God decides you don't. God determines your deal. You don't determine your deal. For some of you, that's great, easy. You, you love the idea of God kind of having this cosmic plan and you fit, you've got a role to play and that gives you, that excites you and that helps you. I feel important and my life is not wasted. For others of you, you're like, 
no way. That last song we sang, My Whole Life I Give to You, no. You're not, you want some say-so in where you're going, and you don't like the idea of somebody, even God, deciding beforehand what you should and shouldn't do, what your deal should be. It's a difficult thing for you to grab onto and to say, yes, that's something I can get excited about. Let me just say this about that. If, you, if, that's, if that's a hard step for you to take, if you believe there is a God, for most people it's pretty easy once you get there to say, yeah, he knows everything, he's omniscient, yeah, he's all-powerful, he's omnipotent, I can get holy that there's no sin in him. Most of those attributes of God are pretty easy to grab onto. Once you cross the threshold and say, yes, I believe there is a God, those other things kind of follow pretty quickly or else the thing that you're believing in is not much of a God at all. But to take the next step and say God is good, very difficult for a lot of people. Very difficult for a lot of us to say God is good because most of us can think of three or four or five counterexamples from our own life where we would say, well, if God is good, then this doesn't make sense. here's Here's my list of grievances. Here's the times in my life where I've seen things that have happened that haven't been good. So either God isn't good or his definition of good is not the same as my definition of good and it causes us to pull back. Plenty of people who are Christians who are trusting God with their life don't believe that he's good and you can see it in the way they live. It's one thing to say, you know, I'm trusting God to get me to heaven when I die. It's another thing to say I'm trusting him with how I'm going to live today. And if you struggle with that, if you would say, honestly, I struggle with trusting God with the daily activities of my life, most likely, I would say, you probably have a deficient view of His goodness. If you if you got it, if you grasp truly the goodness of God, it would be much easier for you to say, well, then I'll trust Him. Kind of a childlike thing. Those of you that have kids, your kids trust you pretty much implicitly up to a certain age because they just, the assumption is you're not going to tell them to do anything that's bad for them. They trust in your goodness. But for a lot of us with God, we don't have that. And a lot of that maybe is well-earned because of where you've come from or the scars that you've had or the things that you've seen. It's hard for you to grab on and say, you know what? I can get holy. I can get righteous. I can get just. I can get powerful. I can get all-knowing. I just can't get good. And that gap, you can have 9 out of 10. But if you're missing that, the good part, it's going to be very difficult for you to trust God with your life. To even begin this whole thing of saying God has a deal for you and that you need to live that out. You have to acknowledge that it's His deal for you. And you won't be able to do that if you don't believe He's good. If you think He's going to make you poor, He's going to make you live in a hut, and you're going to marry an ugly woman, you're not going to, you don't want that. If you think your plan is better than His plan, you're not going to sign up. And the only way to cross that is to believe in the goodness of God. I mean, I can give you some academic answers for things, but it won't satisfy you. This is what I'll say. If you would honestly say, I struggle with that whole concept of God being good, I would just say, ask Him to show you. Well, let's just put it on Him. Prove it. God, if you're good, prove it. If you're going to challenge Him in that way, and I think He's up for it, you just have to be willing to look at the evidence. If you're going to say, God, show me you're good, the, the only precondition 
is that you're willing to see his goodness if he shows you. And then you're going to have to respond in some way or another. God doesn't do parlor tricks. So if he's going to show you something about himself, he's going to expect you to respond. So if that's you, you would honestly say this morning, I don't get the good part. That's tough for me. Right or wrong, just reality, it's tough for me. My challenge to you is just ask him to show you his goodness and commit to saying, you show me, I'll, I'll have my eyes open, but you've got to show me in a way that I understand. Whatever that means for you. Show me in a way that I understand. And then be willing to go from there. So first thing, God decides. Second thing, God has x-ray vision. Verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So you have a contrast between what we see and what God sees. We see outside. That's it. None of us can see inside anybody's heart. As much as we think we can get in somebody else's head and figure out what's going on and we can peel back the layers and figure out why they're doing what they're... We can't. Our eyes see this. So we see appearance. We see external behavior. We see outside. God sees through all of it. He has x-ray vision. He can see into our hearts. And in your heart, it's not just... It's not your squishy heart. It's the center of who you are, mind, will, and emotions, the core of your personality. God can see all of that. Side note, I think that's one of the reasons that we're cautioned about judging. Like Jesus says, y'all don't need to judge other people because we can't judge right. It doesn't take a genius to decide whether an action is moral or immoral, righteous or unrighteous. But what it does take something is to say, well, why is somebody doing whatever it is that they're doing? And only God can see the heart. So there's that caution about judging because we're not going to make the right call. All of us have been suffering at some point. We thought somebody was a good guy. We thought that was, she was you know, being honest with us. And we find out, huh, only God can see the heart. And so for us, there's got to be a little, that's a tangent. I think that's why there's that kind of hands-off approach to judging. It's not about behavior. That's easy. The Bible is very clear what behavior is righteous and unrighteous. But when it comes to motives, we can't really know. Only God can. So there's got to be this kind of stepping back. So we look at the outside. God looks at the inside. And what that does is that changes the basis for everything. What he's saying is that the inside is more important than the outside because that's what he's looking at. So our heart becomes primary. That's why it's so important, not just that you know what your deal is, but that you're constantly looking to become more like Jesus, that you're working on your heart or allowing the Lord to work on your heart because that ultimately is what he cares about the most, we've said this repeatedly, we live out of our hearts. We can't live counter to our hearts for long. And that's what God is looking at. There's this misconception that floats out there, and it's never really said and owned, especially if you're someone who was raised in a church and you know this is wrong, but we act that way anyway, that our standing with God is based on our behavior. There's a story in Luke 15 called The Prodigal Son. You've probably heard it. There's a man, he has two kids an older kid and a younger kid. And the younger son comes to him and says, Dad, I want my inheritance. If you can imagine the audacity of going to your parents while they're still alive and saying, cash it in and give it to me. So that's what he does. And then he goes off. And the Bible says he wastes his wealth in wild living. And you can fill in the blank on wild living. So he's doing that. And at some point, he runs out of money. So he runs out of friends. So then he's slopping pigs to make a living. And he's standing in the middle of that. And he says, it would be better for me to be a servant at home than to be free out here swapping pigs. 
So he creates this whole apology in his head. I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Let me come back as a slave and grovel and beg and all these things. So he starts going home. And the Bible says his dad saw him from a long way off and ran after him. And in this culture, men didn't run. And they didn't run after sons who had shamed them for sure. He's breaking just about every social custom in the book to run after his son. And the fact that he even sees him makes me think he was looking for him anyway. So he runs to his son, and his son starts in. Dad, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even get to finish the speech. And the dad gives him a hug and puts a robe on him, says, bring him a ring, put a ring on his finger, kill the fattened calf, we're going to have a party because this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost, and now he's found. If the story ended there, but there's an older brother. He's outside, and he hears the ruckus in the house, and the servant comes out. He says, what's going on in there? And he says, your brother's home. He doesn't come inside. Imagine that, those of you who have siblings. Your long-lost brother, sister, comes home. Your parents are throwing a party for him, and you won't even come in the house. So the dad goes out again, breaking every social custom to leave the party that he's hosting and to go outside and to go get this older brother. He says, what is wrong? His brother's mad. He's like, I can't believe you're doing this. I've slaved. That's the way. I've slaved for you for years. You've never even given me a goat to eat with my friend. And this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, who wasted your wealth on prostitutes, he comes home and looks at you. And that's how he ends. Dad says, we have to celebrate. He was lost in the We don't want the brother to The thing is, both brothers were lost. Both of them thought they're standing with the problem based on their behavior. The younger brother says, because of the bad stuff I've done, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. The older brother says, because of the good stuff I've done, I'm absolutely worthy to be your son. And both of them are lost. The, sta- the, the standing that we have before the Father is our willingness to accept or reject His love for us. The end of that story, the bad son is in the best spot. He got it. He knew he had nothing else. He could not stand on his track record because it stopped. His only shot was the grace of his dad. The older son is in a world of hurt because he thinks he's good enough. For those of us in this room, some of you, you're good sons. You recycle, and you volunteer, and you give your clothes to goodwill, and you come to church. Like, you do all, you're a good person. Anybody who knows you, absolutely, she or he, is a good person. You know you're not Mother Teresa, but you're, you're a good person. And the temptation when you're a good person is to say, I'm going to run on my track. I pay my own way. I'm good enough. And I'm not. You can do everything. It's not, it's not the ground that we stand on. God sets the rules. This is the ground that we stand on. You accept my love for you or you reject me. Don't bring me your Those of us who've lived in the gutter a lot easier for us to say, I'll take that because we know all of it. But for those of us who have a good one, it's very difficult to burn it 
say all the good stuff I've done. That counts. That's what it means for God to look at our hearts. That's where it starts for us. Not looking at the at your behavior. You want that? Go be a Muslim. That's what they did. They got an angel on each shoulder recording all the good things you did, all the bad things. And when you die, they're going to wait. Whichever one of them you're in and you're out. It's not what Jesus did. He said, You wipe away all of that. Did you accept? Did you reject the love that I have? The grace that I have. Second thing. If our heart is primary, then it's the basis for us doing our deeds. Again, David is not Israeli idol or what he's not doing. He's not trying out. He's not auditioning. He's not, he doesn't bring anything to the table. It's not here are all the guys. Pick a king. God says it's him. He's 12. There's nothing about him that commends him as a king other than God can see his heart. That's it. And the same thing is true for us, and so you can relax. It's not about your skill set. It's about your heart. If your heart is a heart that is seeking God, that is after God in some way, you're good. This is Acts 1. Don't, you don't have to flip over there. It'll be up on the screen. So, this is what, so there were 12 disciples. Judas betrays Jesus, realizes he blew it, kills himself. So now there's 11 disciples, and these 11 disciples think, realize we need a 12. We need to fill the team here. And there's some scripture that they use for that. So they're together in an upper room because Jesus said, just, you just need to wait there until the Holy Spirit comes. So they're waiting. And they realize we need a 12. And so this is picking up from after that decision. Therefore, because of these scriptures that we read that says we need a 12, it's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So he's saying, we need a twelve. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Versabbos and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. So kind of the picture here. They got two guys who are both well qualified. They've been with Jesus for the past three years. These are good. They, they wouldn't have put a bum up. Every, both of these guys are quality men. They're both qualified to do the job. But what they're saying is, God, we don't know which one you called to this role. So you show us. Your heart is a key because God has formed you and shaped you. Uh, Psalm 139 says this, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So the picture there is God knitting us together, creating us in our mother's womb. And then we've already talked about he's created these good works for us to do beforehand, and they fit. The same guy that made you created a life for you. The same God, he knows you better than anybody, and so he's created this stuff for you. It's going to fit like a glove. And your heart, that's why your heart is so important. Again, your, your heart is the center of your mind and your will and your emotions. It's the core of who you are. And the thing that he's called to you, it's going to fit that. That's why your heart is so important. One of the reasons Proverbs says to guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. This thing that God wants for you, this deal that he has for you, it's, it's going to fit with you who you are. On the, we'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks, but... 
just realize that's the qualification. It's not your skill set, not your experience, not your talent. Those things are great. But what God is saying is, who's got the heart? Because I've got this thing that's going to fit together. Third, God saves seats. Verse 10. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are, all, are those all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We won't sit down until he arrives. So I'm sure Jesse loved David. I'm, I'm sure he did. But, you know, you got a lot of kids. Maybe it's easy to forget one or something like that. Some, David doesn't even get called to the thing here. Samuel says, I don't know. I mean, whatever. He doesn't even get called. We're going to have this sacrifice and the prophets here and it's a big deal and David doesn't even know about it and he's out tending sheep. But that, he's the guy God wants and God saved his seat. The other seven sons, they couldn't take it. They weren't necessarily trying to, but they couldn't even if they did. Remember last week, we talked about Absalom, David's third son, who launches this coup to take the throne. And when David hears about it, he says, all right, I'm out. We're, just, we're going to walk out the door. And within, it seems pretty quickly. I'm not sure the exact timing, but it's pretty quickly. It's just a handful of chapters in 2 Samuel. David brought back. That was his seat. He was the king. His brothers couldn't accidentally wind up there, even though they looked better and were older and were more qualified. And his son couldn't take it by force. God saved the seat. So some of you are strivers. And you're... You're anxious and you, you want to get there. And it frustrates you that you can't. It's like you're banging your head against the wall. I know, I know what my deal is, but I can't make it happen. I keep pushing, I keep pushing, and I'm not going anywhere. What you need to you need to relax. God will save your sin. He saved David for 18 years. And then when his son tried to take it over, he saved it again. And the same thing is true for you again this Psalm 139 that we just read. He's got this thing for you that perfectly fits for who you are. There's a seat for you on the bus, and it's got your name on it. And he'll bring you there. Some of you are lazy and passive. Don't hear this as saying you can continue to be lazy and passive. It's not what I'm, I'm talking to people who you're a striver. You're a doer. You want to make this thing happen. You know what you want to do. You, it's like you're squeezing it so hard, and it's, just, it's slipping out of your hand. God will save your seat. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to angle. You don't have to position. You don't have to do any of that. You need to be faithful where you are. David's tending sheep. They go find it. Bring it here. If you're doing, if, if you're being faithful where you are, God can see He knows where you're at. He knows where you're at. He'll put you on the bus when it's time. He'll put you on easy for me to Hard to do. You've got to try. You save seats. You save your seat. You just keep being faithful where you are. He'll get to you. And your time is right. Last thing. God confirms. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. This deal, for some of you, you've been here for a while and you've heard us talk about this multiple times, and it's a, it's a point of frustration for you. Because you don't get it. Because you say, I'm doing all the things that you're saying to do, and I don't know what my thing is. And I hear you. I, I, I know that can be 
frustrating. All I can say is a couple of things. One, if you're a person, then you have a deal. You're not the only one exempt. You're not the sole exemption in the Bible. It doesn't say in Ephesians 2.10, God created good works in advance for everybody but your name to do. It's all of us. All, if you're alive, he's got something for you. So just hang in there. And he's going to confirm it. It's not, he's not hiding the cookies from you. He wants you to know. And he's not reluctant when you find it. Oh, man. I guess i got to go hide it in a better place next time. No. This is what he's created for you to do. And he wants you to grab it with both hands and take a big bite. And he will confirm it. Now, the chances of a guy coming up to you and dumping a jar of oil on your head are pretty slim. It doesn't happen anymore. But he will confirm And you need to look for these confirmations. Oftentimes, we we don't recognize where God is directing us. We're just too busy. We're not paying attention. That's why last week we said it's important to create space for him to speak to us because the pace of our life is so frenetic that that we we can't see anything beyond just getting through. A few things for you to pay attention to. We talked about these before. Compelling spirit. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God lives within you and he will direct you. You may have heard people talk about God speaking to them. They don't mean the way I'm talking to you in an audible voice. It's an internal directing. It's kind of like your conscience on steroids. It's thoughts in your mind, you know, that that come from, they're smarter than you, is basically what they are. And as you grow with the Lord, you'll begin to recognize that voice moving you and guiding you and directing you. So when you're trying to discern your deal, that's a, that's a huge component of that. Is How do you feel the Holy Spirit leading you? Second thing, commanding Scripture. That's where the, the ones for our church are Bible verses. To make those things jumped off the page and said, this is what we need to be about. And for you, there might be a Bible verse. Take care of the widows and orphans. That's what I want to do. Preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. For me, it, so I know that's not it for me. So, whatever it is, there could be particular verses that they're they're highlighted when you read. So you've got to read or listen, however that works for you. Again, it's that creating space for God to work. You look for that for those. All of the verses in the Bible are true, but are there ones that seem truer to you? Ones that stir you in a. In a deeper way. It could be that that God's saying, that's your deal. You have a passion for this issue, or you have a passion for this um, direction more than other people do. And the third, and this is huge, Council of the Saints. It's the church. It's people who love you and people who love God who will help you. They, oftentimes, other people see us better than we see ourselves. If you find yourself constantly making decisions that run against what the people who love you and love God are saying. There may be times where that has to happen. And there are biblical examples of that. People kind of being lone rangers and going against the grain. But if that's your MO, if you look back and you are constantly swimming against the input from people who love you and people who love God, they need both. Love you and love God. If you're swimming against that, you need to take stock and say, am I, am I on the right track here. And other side of that, 
if they're people who love you and who love God and they're pushing you in a direction that you continue to resist, it could very well be that they see you better than you. They see strength, they see gifts, they see purposes for you that you just for whatever reason can't see about yourself. And you need to really think about that. If you, are, if you regularly get input from people you trust, people who love you and love God, and they're saying, you need to go right. You, I never go right. I always go left. You need to think about going right. It's one of the ways, the most tangible ways God speaks to us is through other people. There's two others that to me are like it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, but it's 1, 2, 3, 25, and 26. They're way down the list. One is circumstantial time. That's something that kind of, and we talk about open doors and closed doors, and that, that's okay. But sometimes God wants you to walk past an open door, and sometimes he wants you to kick down a closed door. They're just not that helpful. And then common sense, which again, that's fine, but there are times where the thing the Lord wants you to do is, doesn't make a lot of sense. So to me, those things are secondary for sure. But those first are the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and people who love you and love God. That's one of the ways God will confirm the direction that you need to go. He'll confirm your deal to you. And when it comes to shaping your character, that's one of the ways he'll do it, which can be painful. One of the ways he'll say, he'll smooth the edges, particularly, is other people in your life. It's one of the reasons small groups are so important. You need people in your life who are willing to say, you got lettuce in your teeth. You need that. Or you're going to walk around with lettuce and eat the rest of that. It's hard to hear. But that's one of the one of the one of the things we're supposed to do. You get that. So all of those, that's kind of that's God. That's what He does. He decides. He determines what you're dealing with. That, that chapter was written before you were born. So you can either go with it or you can rebel against it. It's already and if you want to live life fully, you need to go with it. So if I can know you do that, then you know that. Second thing is, God has x-ray vision. He's looking at hearts. And so our standing with them is based on whether we accept or reject this love. It's not based on our behavior or our activity. Third thing is God saves you. You don't need to, you don't need to go grasping. Chair's got your name on it. Nobody else can sit there. You just you keep being faithful where you are, and he'll move you there in the right time. And the last thing is God will confirm what he's calling you to do. He's not going to make it hard for you. You're not going to have to guess and wonder. If you want to, you know, you want to. Sometimes we can even take for granted how much of an interest can take in Sometimes we wonder why you take you do. You are absolutely forming and shaping our bodies, forming and shaping our character. You're absolutely to us living the life you created for us. Not so you can move pieces around on a chessboard, but because you love us and you know what you can bring to us. Maximum. 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 Not that it's all of that way. It's the thing that we were made to do. So God, I pray for each person that all of each of us will 
grab on to both of those things. So we, over the next week and two weeks and three weeks before we can be able to say with that last song, my whole life is yours. I give it all. Surrender to you. Come and have your way. Have your way with my heart. Have your way with my character. Show me where there's lettuce. God, have your way when it comes to my lifestyle. I want to know what you want me to be doing. What's my deal? I'll give myself to it. I just need to know what it is. God, I pray over these next few weeks that you would make both of those things play. That we'd be able to encourage one another. In you. God, that we would cooperate. You have to stand up. We're going to close um, with communion. And the way we take communion here is uh, there'll be two folks up here if you're helping with that if you come forward. The way we take communion here is uh, you come forward at some point. If you want to, you can follow me. You, you don't have to. There'll be crackers that are broken. And you'll grab a cracker and then you'll dip it 